Welcome to the BLG Podcast, where we discuss industry trends and legal issues that affect Canadian businesses. Borden Ladner Gervais is one of Canada's largest law firms, with more than 700 lawyers, intellectual property agents, and other professionals located in five cities across Canada. In this edition, BLG partners Duncan Marsden and Alan Ross discuss how the changes to cannabis legislation in Canada will impact employers. Well, thank you very much and welcome. My name is Alan Ross. I'm the Regional Managing Partner with Borden Ladner Gervais in Calgary. I've been practicing regulatory law since 1994, and I'm fascinated by all things regulated and many things unregulated. The Government of Canada has committed to implementing a federally regulated adult-use cannabis market by the end of this year. Adult use will occur alongside Canada's medical cannabis market. Adults will be able to legally possess, grow, and purchase limited amounts of cannabis. Upon coming into force, adult Canadians would be able to purchase cannabis from a retailer that's been authorized by the province or territory to sell and distribute cannabis. Through new legislation, the Government of Canada is moving from prohibition to regulation. Cannabis will no longer be a controlled substance. Both the adult use and medical markets of the cannabis industry, along with the industrial hemp industry, will be primarily regulated under one act, Bill C-45. This will be referred to as the Cannabis Act. Critical issues arising from these changes include impacts in the workplace and how employers address cannabis usage. With me to discuss this is Duncan Marsden, a labor and employment partner with Borden Ladner Gervais. For those of you that missed it, Duncan addressed these issues at BLG's May 3rd Labor and Employment Law Symposium, and what a great event that was. Duncan, great to have you with us. Before we begin, maybe tell us a little bit about your background and your practice area. Hi, Alan. Yeah, thanks for inviting me to discuss this uh, interesting topic. I am a partner in our labour and employment group. Uh, We are a national group. We have a big team here in Calgary, uh, which is where I'm based, and we help mainly corporations with anything to do with their employees, including um, litigation, human rights issues, corporate transactions, and generally helping usually uh, human resources professionals in um, day-to-day issues which arise in the workplace. A very broad swath of expertise. Tell us a little bit about your journey to the practice of labour and employment law at BLG. Well, I've always been a labour and employment lawyer. I um, started off in London and I graduated law school in 1996 and started as a, a trainee, as we call them over there, in 1998 and I worked for the world's largest law firm in London. And during that time, I met my wife, who is Canadian, and she uh, suggested we move to Canada, and after some negotiation, here I am. And I've been here 11 years, and with BLG throughout that entire time. Now, in addition to being a leading labor and employment lawyer, I understand you also run marathons. Tell us a little bit about that. I do run marathons, yeah. I uh, just recently ran a marathon in Eugene, Oregon, and yeah, I was very happy with my time. It's very nice down there. It's good to get out and see the world literally on your feet. Great stuff. Well, one of the things we're talking a little bit about today is safety when we, it comes to the question of cannabis in the workplace, and of course, safety first. One of the aspects of safety is impairment in the workplace. What does impairment mean in the labor and employment context? Well, for, for me, impairment is someone's inability to do their job safely, really, and impairment can come in any variety of ways. The difficulty with impairment is that 
most people think of drugs or alcohol and generally speaking that's what employers are testing for but it, it's a really crude tool if you think about it because quite often you're not testing for drugs and you're not testing for alcohol what you're testing for is to understand whether or not the individual is safe to perform their duties and the duties might be sitting at a desk and generally speaking most people are safe to perform those types of duties even lawyers or if someone is uh, operating heavy machinery then it's a it's a much bigger bigger issue obviously but the the difficulty that employers face is that you're only really testing for drugs and alcohol whereas impairment comes in many formats for example uh, sleep deprivation is a huge factor in impairment and you could have someone who is uh, sleep deprived for whatever reason it might be and they could very well be impaired I mean I think of situations where I might be driving along the road with my wife in the passenger seat and my kids in the back and I'm feeling tired and quite often I'll say you know well I feel a bit too tired to drive why don't you take over and we'll pull over and she'll take over and I often challenge employers and say isn't that the situation that you would want in your workforce if one of your employees who's operating heavy machinery feels too tired to operate it don't you want a workplace where that employee can speak up and say you know what I feel like I'm a danger to the workplace. The difficulty that you have, obviously, is that while there are tests out there which show actual impairment, it opens a complete minefield when you test for just impairment. You can have uh, tests which ha have retinal reaction tests, for example. But the, the difficulty is then how many of your workplace are going to fail due to sleep deprivation. And if they do fail due to sleep deprivation, what's the underlying cause? Do they have a disability like sleep apnea? Are they a new parent and therefore they're not getting enough sleep? I was reading a study recently which said that someone who consistently gets fewer than five or six hours of sleep a night is as impaired as someone who may be drunk or may be uh, on drugs of, of, of whatever nature. And so it's often very difficult to open up these types of issue not least because half your workforce may fail at any given time if you're introducing that sort of uh, test. Extremely so. Now that's fascinating as a bit of a detour. Do we test for sleep deprivation at all in the workplace? I mean, you can. There's a, there's a test out there which is a retinal reaction test. But even that, I mean, the difficulty with tests is that you can always get around them. And if so, if an employee knows that you are testing for retinal reactions and they know that they are, and, and you're not testing for drugs or alcohol, you're just testing for reaction time to see if their their reactions are quick enough to operate machinery, for example. And they know that you're not testing for drugs and alcohol, and they know that they've taken something which may impair their ability to react more quickly. Or one of the ways around that is to take a drug which will speed up your reactions, like speed, for example. And so the tests are always very difficult to... Uh, to look into and to, to get the right result from. And so even if you introduce an impairment test, it's not without its difficulties. And doesn't it become more difficult as we move towards a changing regulatory framework for cannabis, that cannabis and the question of impairment in the workplace are twinned? Potentially, yes. I mean, the difficulty that we have at this stage is um, it's very easy if someone fails a drugs test for cannabis to sort of say, well, you're doing something illegal and therefore we're not going to... Um, uh, you know, we're not going to allow you to continue working for us. That's a broad statement, obviously. But when it becomes legal, it's going to have to be viewed in a very different lens. And it's going to ha have to be viewed in the same way as alcohol, for example. You know, it's, it's regulated, but you can drink it or use it overnight. Um, and as long as you're not attending the workplace in an impaired manner, then that's fine. I mean, I think one of the misconceptions is that 
people can turn up to work stoned once the legislation is passed. But I think it's important to make the point that it has never been the case and it will never be the case that employees will be entitled to turn up to work impaired in any way in the sense of they can't you can't turn up to work drunk to currently and in the future you won't be able to turn up to work stoned so so the new legislation doesn't give you a free pass on that absolutely just not. because it's uh, it's uh, there's adult use available it doesn't mean you can show up in an impaired state absolutely not and that and i think that would apply regardless of whether or not we'll be talking about safety sensitive roles but that issue uh, applies whatever job you're doing like you can't turn up to work drunk whatever job you're doing I mean I can't think of one at the minute where turning up to, <laughs> to work drunk would be acceptable and the same will apply to to cannabis when it's legal what are some of the primary safety concerns of cannabis in the workplace well the I think the primary concern is for individuals who are operating heavy machinery or who are in safety sensitive roles in particular who may turn up to work in an impaired state and who are therefore unable to safely carry out their duties and that may cause damage to property or more seriously may cause harm to themselves or to their work colleagues and there are a whole I mean there are competing issues here we have human rights legislation which we'll talk about we have privacy legislation there's lots of things that we talk about but Safety first, I think, is something that a lot of my clients have that mantra, and you've mentioned it a couple of times. Safety is obviously going to be of the utmost priority, and it's a laudable concern. You know, we want to make sure that our employees are safe when they're at work, and that's fine. And you would think that that would trump everything. But the difficulty you have is that you have human rights considerations and privacy considerations, which are competing against this safety issue. We had. Um, one case where uh, a judge um, quite succinctly put it along the lines of, you know, if you are putting uh, someone through a drugs and alcohol test, essentially what you're doing is you're taking them out of the workforce, you're imprisoning them, imprisoning them in a room until they give up some of their bodily substances. And he quite quaintly put it, that is no mere trifle. It's, you know, it's not something that you should take lightly. Is that the right interpretation, though, do you think? Well, I don't know if there is a right interpretation. I mean, I do think that safety has to come first, but equally, I think you can put safety first and still be alive to issues of human rights and issues of sensitivity in the workplace. One of the fascinating issues to layer on this discussion, of course, is that there's different uses of cannabis, significant distinctions between somebody using it for medical purposes or other types of usage. Let's talk about that a little bit. If an employee has a medical document, what does that mean with respect to labor and employment law? Yeah, so I think it's there's a difference currently because cannabis has not been legalized. The, I think the difference will narrow um, slightly when cannabis is legalized. But at the moment, individuals who uh, have been prescribed cannabis can take it for whatever condition they may have, from a physical condition like a back complaint, for example, to uh, a mental condition, to ease stress or whatever it might be. And so if someone has a medical note, then they are entitled to take cannabis. But equally, that doesn't mean they can turn up to work in an impaired state. And cannabis, which is prescribed for medical use, in my view, needs to be looked at in the same way as any other uh, medically prescribed substance. If a substance has been prescribed for the individual to take, then of course they should be taking it. But then you have to look at what the effects are on that individual. And it might be that there are no effects 
But equally, if there are effects, whether it's cough medicine or whether it's um, melanonin, I can't say that word very well, but to, you know, to aid sleep or whatever it might be, if it says on the tin, do not operate heavy machinery while you're under this, then equally you shouldn't, you shouldn't be operating heavy machinery while, while you're on that medication. And the same would apply to cannabis, whether or not it's prescribed. So I think the thing to take from that for employers is to make sure that in your policy, it is very clear that if you are on anything which could potentially cause impairment for you, be it cannabis, be it cough medicine, whatever it might be, that you have to disclose that to your manager so that appropriate measures can be taken. And if you fail to disclose that, then that's a breach of policy which you can potentially be disciplined for. So the individual can uh, use uh, medically approved cannabis and the employer must allow them to do that, but with a lot of restrictions around that. Well, that is a very good question. I mean, everything turns on its own facts, and uh, I don't think you could give as broad a statement as that. And certainly there are bigger issues with respect to um, medical cannabis because human rights legislation is going to apply. Um, human rights legislation applies to individuals who have a disability, and disability from a drug and alcohol perspective can come in a number of ways and people usually think of it coming with respect to individuals who have an addiction and therefore that's say, seen under human rights legislation as a mental disability and therefore you can't discriminate based on that disability and you have to accommodate that disability up to the point of undue hardship. But if someone is taking medical cannabis, what most people in my experience haven't sort of thought through really is that there has to be an underlying reason why they're taking that medical cannabis. And that underlying reason itself will undoubtedly be a disability under human rights legislation because the, the definition of disability is very wide under human rights legislation. And so if someone is taking medical, medical cannabis for stress or for a back condition, the stress may well be a disability which would have to be accommodated or the back condition may have to be a disability which may have to be accommodated. I want to talk a little bit more about disabilities, but I want to take you back to a phrase you've used and that's safety sensitive position. Mm. What does that mean? Well, that is also very difficult and very fact specific. A safety sensitive position, in my view, is anything where other individuals could uh, come to some sort of harm. And you could have a a position which is safety sensitive just by the fact that it's in a particular workplace. So if you're in a workplace where there are lots of forklift trucks, for example, and you, you're sat behind a desk all day, but in order to access certain parts of the plant, you have to walk across the warehouse, which is, has forklift trucks coming in and going backwards and forth, then your position could be safety sensitive by dint of the, the nature of the workplace rather than just by dint of the duties that you're doing. So it's usually seen as someone operating heavy machinery or uh, someone who is working in a particularly dangerous workplace where the risk of injury or damage to property is, is higher than most. When you're having a conversation about cannabis in the workplace, science matters. Let's unpack some language respecting the nature of cannabis because it has direct relevance to usage and workplace requirements. THC, CBD, and terpenes. The most researched cannabinoid is THC. It's responsible for the way your brain and body respond to cannabis, including what's referred to as the high or intoxication. The potency of THC in cannabis is often shown as a percentage of THC by weight. 
Potency in dried cannabis has increased significantly from the 1980s, and today some strains can average as high as 30% THC. Cannabis that contains very low amounts of THC is classified as hemp, CBD. Unlike THC, CBD does not produce a high or intoxication. There is some evidence that CBD may block or lower some of the effects of THC on the mind. This may occur when the amount of CBD in cannabis is the same or higher than the amount of THC. CBD itself is being studied for possible therapeutic uses, such as pain management and anxiety. And terpenes, which is often referred to of in the cannabis context, are chemicals made and stored in the cannabis plant. And these are the things that give cannabis its distinctive smell. So let's unpack some of these terms in the workplace. Duncan, if there's a difference between the impacts of THC and CBD, which may impact impairment, what do employers have to do about this? How do they navigate the THC and CBD issues? Well, I think that's part of the real issue, is that um, someone may be taking uh, cannabis for whatever reason, either recreational or for medical reasons, and you don't actually have a test for impairment for it. And so you don't know if that individual is currently impaired. The, the good thing about, for example, if you're testing for uh, alcohol use in the workplace is that you can have someone blow into a breathalyzer and they, were, if they test positive, you know that they are currently drunk. And that's something you can deal with and you can handle and you know that they are currently impaired and they can't operate the heavy machinery, for example. But just because someone fails a drug test as a result of cannabis doesn't mean that they're currently impaired. And it may well be that they had smoked at a party six days earlier. And coming back to a theme that we said earlier, it may be that they are less impaired than the individual who has three young kids who kept them up all night. I'm glad you raised the issue of testing because that's critical. Do we have accurate medical testing on the marketplace? No, and that is the difficulty, not something that will show the level of impairment that you need it to. And I think the difficulty that we're going to have, and I guess um, the RCMP are going to face these same issues when you've got roadside stops, I think more and more we're going to come back to uh, reasonable suspicion testing as being the basis for making uh, for, for having a test for drugs or alcohol. So if someone currently, if someone smells of alcohol, slurring their speech, you might do an alcohol test. Uh, similarly, you would have someone who might smell of marijuana and may have a slurred speech and may have dilated pupils or whatever the effects are. And if you have a reasonable suspicion for carrying out that test, then that's the basis on which you would carry out that test. But there are a number of different types of tests and, and reasonable suspicion is only one of them. But reasonable suspicion, suspicion certainly raises some concerns or danger. I mean, what if you test somebody and you get it wrong? Well, I think as long as you can show that you did have reasonable suspicion, just because they turn out not to be drunk or high um, does not impact the decision. If you can come to a decision based on some reasonable criteria, and I would always recommend that managers are trained in this area and are trained as to what to look for and document the reasons why they've asked someone to take a drug or alcohol test, then just because they get it wrong, as you say, does, shouldn't necessarily impact, uh, from a legal perspective, the decision to, to carry out the test in the first place. The when of testing is also important. Can employers conduct pre-employment for cannabis? Yes, they can. Um, usually it's recommended that, we, uh, that employers only do it for safety-sensitive positions. 
because there would not necessarily be a reason to carry out that sort of test for someone who's working in an office environment or something along those lines. And that's where the privacy issue comes in. If you're collecting data on an individual, then it has to be reasonable. And so in the same way that you would carry, you would only really carry out a, a police check for someone who's working with children or vulnerable adults, or you would carry out a credit check for someone who's working with large amounts of money. You would only really carry out a drug or alcohol test for someone who's in a safety-sensitive position. And sticking with the question of when on testing, can employers conduct scheduled testing for cannabis? Well, I guess you could, but I'm not sure if that would be a good idea because I think it would be a uh, pretty uh, stupid employee who would fail a scheduled drug or alcohol test. Um, I think you're better off doing uh, pre-employment testing, reasonable suspicion testing, post-incident testing, and potentially random testing, although, of course, that's a real hot topic um, with the... cases going up and down to the Supreme Court of Canada almost monthly now dealing with random testing. Then we need to hear more about that. Tell us about that. So um, a few years ago Suncor um, tried to implement random testing in the workplace and they had this um, project called DARP, the Drug and Alcohol Risk Reduction Project I think it was called, and a number of employers were to sign up to this project and introduce random drug testing and see if that had a positive or negative or no impact on the safety statistics. And the idea was that they thought safety statistics would improve if employees were subject to random testing. The union brought a grievance with respect to Suncor's ability to implement that testing procedure. And there were injunctions and there was an arbitration and it's gone through several iterations and it's it's still ongoing. So we don't really have a definitive answer, but certainly the Supreme Court of Canada has given us some clues as to what we're looking for. And with respect to random testing, generally speaking, um, if you can agree it with the employees or if you can agree it with the union, then there shouldn't necessarily be a problem. But if you are trying to impose it, then the courts are going to be looking not only for a safety-sensitive workplace, but something extra. And that something extra is evidence of a drug or alcohol problem in the workplace and they're two distinct and definitive issues so if for example you can show or you have evidence that um, individuals have been using alcohol in the workplace for example you might find empty beer cans or, or, or something along those lines in a work camp then you can point to that extra evidence as say this is a safety sensitive workplace we have evidence of alcohol use in the workplace therefore we need to implement random testing but that doesn't mean sorry random alcohol testing but that doesn't mean you then have the right to implement random drug testing unless you also found for example drug paraphernalia in the uh, washrooms or wherever it might be so if an employee fails a drug test it sounds like there are both rights on the employee side but also responsibility for example with respect to safety of other people on the employer side yeah that's right if Uh, an employee fails a drug or alcohol test, there are a number of issues which can follow from that. Um, Usually uh, employers think, well, I get the right to fire, surely, you know, this individual is impaired at work, they can't be impaired at work, they're in breach of a policy, hopefully you have a robust policy in place, and therefore I can terminate their employment. But it's not always as easy as that, and in particular there may be human rights issues which arise as a result of the drug or alcohol issue. So for example, if the individual has uh, an addiction, and we spoke about this earlier, um, an addiction to the particular drug or alcohol um, 
that they've tested positive for, then it may well be that you have a duty to accommodate the individual and you can't discriminate against that individual um, unless it's uh, lawful to do so because it's reasonable and justifiable. Presumably we need to train managers with respect to cannabis usage generally and testing in particular. What might that training look like? Well, I think the biggest issue for managers is ensuring that the workplace is safe. And I think the biggest issue for managers is not necessarily how to carry out a test or what to do with respect to the results of the test. Um, I think human resources departments would uh, take over that role. But for managers in particular, I, I would suspect that the biggest issue is going to be spotting an individual who they believe to be uh, impaired in whatever way and how they deal with that individual. You know, do I have the right to you know, pull them out of that heavy machinery and make them sit in a room until the drug and alcohol testers get there? And what do I do with a positive test? So it, it's important to speak to managers to empower them to recognise the uh, the potential consequences of, of, of not dealing with people who are impaired and making sure that managers realise that they can deal with employees who are impaired and the way in which the, the particular employer wants them to be handled. Once we face the regulatory change happening at the end of this year, it's conceivable, isn't it, that employers might have to allow employees to use cannabis at workplace events where currently alcohol is served, such as a holiday season party? Well, I guess so, but... Um, and you're right in the sense, and you're right to compare it to alcohol, because there's going to be a real shift in mindset. I mean, I think there's a, a bit of a stigma at the minute for cannabis, but when it gets legalized, it, it shouldn't be viewed any differently from alcohol, really. And so, yeah, if you are permitting alcohol at an event, then the argument would be, why, why, why can't I have uh, cannabis at the event? And it's a compelling argument, but I think... Uh, employers are entitled to make their own rules at their own holiday parties to a certain degree and if you are allowing alcohol it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to allow cannabis and there may be uh, municipal regulations which prevent it so for example you might not be able to smoke it indoors um, obviously you might not be able to smoke it outdoors um, depending which city you're in Calgary has become very uh, restrictive on where you can use it and when you can use it and those sorts of issues. So it's not necessarily exactly the same as alcohol. So as with alcohol, you might be in a workplace whereby you're taking somebody out for lunch, going to a client event where alcohol would be served. What about the paradigm with respect to cannabis? You're absolutely right. I mean, there are um, circumstances where you may have a client, for example, who has a particular affinity to scotch and you might take that individual to a scotch tasting event or so you might have a client who likes wine and you might take them to a wine tasting event. I mean, it, it's very conceivable that in the future you could have a client who has a particular affiliation to certain types of cannabis and uh, why should it be that you couldn't take that individual to an event which is based on trying different types of cannabis. It, it is really going to be a completely different shift in mindset for a lot of individuals with respect to the use of cannabis. I mean, it will no longer be unlawful. But Duncan, what if you had an employer that said, I want to take a zero tolerance approach? Could they do that? Yeah, I don't see a problem with that in the same way that you could with alcohol. And many employers do currently. They say, look, if you're having a drink over lunch, you're not coming back to the office. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Does it, anything change in your mind with respect to the THC-CBD 
uh, distinction, whereby THC is more of an intoxicant, CBD somewhat less. If you have a different ratio or a lower ratio, does that make a difference or is it irrelevant? It does make a difference because, again, it comes back to impairment. But the difficulty is um, you don't, we don't currently have a test which shows uh, the current impairment. We don't have a test, as far as I'm aware, which allows you to um, determine what the THC content or CBD content of a particular drug is that an individual may have ingested. You just recognize, or the test just recognizes that they have marijuana in their system and doesn't even tell you when that marijuana entered their system. So um, that becomes an issue. Let's Sorry, I keep using the word uh, marijuana and I'd sort of slip to that. The um, I, I've been told that marijuana has a derogatory, um, I'm using it interchangeably with cannabis, I've been told that marijuana has a derogatory uh, sort of term, and so uh, certainly the Cannabis Act refers to cannabis and the legislation refers to cannabis, but um, I think it's important to note that um, most policies that you have should refer to cannabis rather than marijuana because marijuana apparently historically has a derogatory ring to it. But in the workplace, we might hear these words interchangeably in the discussion about testing or individuals. Yeah, and I, you know, and I think it's also important to recognize that there isn't a difference between the term marijuana and cannabis for most people. Let's continue the conversation with respect to disability because disability and employment law very much go hand in hand. Tell us a little bit more about the duty to accommodate, which might extend to non-medicinal use, if any. So the duty to accommodate in a human rights context is a duty to accommodate any protected ground up to the point of undue hardship. So, for example, um, the, the classic example is, uh, with respect to disability in particular, is if you have someone who is in a wheelchair, you may have to accommodate that disability by ensuring that you have elevators or ensuring that you have a ramp or some means to access your work facilities. You might have to have doors widened or whatever it might be. With respect to cannabis, the disability will come in two factors. The first factor is the individual may be addicted to cannabis and therefore they may, that may be a, a disability and therefore a protected ground under human rights legislation or the individual may be taking cannabis for a medical reason and then the underlying medical reason may well be the disability. And the consequences of falling under a protected ground of, the, of human rights legislation is that generally speaking you are safe from being discriminated against or it would be unlawful if you were discriminated against as a result of that protected ground and there is a positive duty on the employer to accommodate that disability up to the point of undue hardship. Let's talk about that. If an employer suspects an employee has an addiction to cannabis, what are the requirements of the employer? Well, find out more, I think, is the answer, and um, find out if they do, in fact, have an addiction. I think speaking to the employee is the first port of call, obviously, in any situation like that. But the difficulty you have is that often an addict is the last person to admit that they're an addict, and so you can't really take what they say as being the full truth of the matter and so certainly speak to the employee and find out what the issue is but equally um, try and get some medical evidence try and find out from a doctor or a counselor or whoever it might be whether or not uh, we're dealing with an individual who has an addiction I mean I know I've faced many cases where employees are confronted by the employer you failed a drugs test you got cannabis in your system and they immediately say oh I never use it I was at a party at secondhand smoke that sort of thing and so 
you as an employee you might immediately jump on that and say well that's great there's no addiction they've admitted they're a recreational user but i think it's not often as easy as that and often in those circumstances the employee feels like they have to defend themselves particularly because it's currently uh, a prohibited substance and once you get that information what are some best practices to accommodate an employee with a cannabis addiction that is what are some of the ramps if you will for a cannabis user? Well, I think the first thing to do with any accommodation is to ask the employee what they think is reasonable. What, what do they need? What does the employee need? Now, it doesn't mean that if the employee wants something which is completely outrageous that you have to then comply with it, but certainly it's a two-way process accommodation. And so I think the first thing to do is to speak to the employee and find out what they think they need in order to be accommodated properly. Then after that, assess whether or not the medical evidence, and, and certainly get some medical evidence, uh, supports what they want. And then finally have a look and see if it's something that you can do within the realms of reason reasonableness. And so for example, if an individual wants to take every Monday morning off or, or turn up to work late because they have to um, smoke cannabis in order to enable themselves to sleep, and that means that they might be slightly impaired at seven in the morning when you want them to attend and so you can sh push their shift from 10 a.m. until 8 p.m. Maybe that's something that you can do and it's no problem at all. Um, but it all depends on the individual uh, requests and the individual accommodation requirements and whether or not it's reasonable. So an employer has to go relatively far to deal with an addicted employee involving cannabis but there are limits on those requirements. That's exactly right, yeah. And, and relatively far, I mean, it depends on a number of factors, not least the size of the employer. So if you are a, a huge multinational corporation, then it might be that you have to spend tens of thousands of dollars accommodating an individual's requirements. If you're a mom and pop shop, gas station or whatever it might be, and you barely make you know a, a living, then it might be that a requirement to put in a, an elevator that costs $50,000 is, is beyond your means and therefore it would then become uh, undue hardship. So it all depends on the individual circumstances. Duncan, you've mentioned the importance of policies in the workplace as we see change with respect to cannabis. Do employers need to amend their workplace policies to address regulated adult use cannabis? It's strongly recommended. I mean, there's no requirement to amend it but I definitely would, not least because there's a lot of confusion around the subject and certainly uh, it would be helpful to have in a policy a specific reference to cannabis once it becomes uh, non-illicit uh, so that in, uh, employees understand that these requirements also apply to cannabis and to anything which would impair them in the workplace. And what specific kinds of policies would you be looking for? Well, we've moved away from sort of a drug and alcohol policy to a fitness for work policy or an impairment policy or those types of policies, the idea that you need to turn up to work fit to work. And could we see the development of policies as a joint effort between employers and employees, or is it very much employer-driven? I think it's important for employers to understand what's going on in their workplace and then to respond accordingly. So to the extent that employees obviously are driving the issues that an employer is facing in the workplace, then the employees will be involved in the creation of the policy. But I think it's, it's important for the employer to be the one who's laying down the rules and 
laying down the requirements. And one of the biggest requirements, I think, in any type of policy like this is to ensure that the individual understands that they have to disclose the use of any substance which could potentially impair their ability to perform their duties safely. The other issue with respect to policies is it's great having a, the best policy in the world, but you've got to communicate it to employees and you've got to make sure employees understand it. So it might be um, good um, when you have amended your policy to ensure that it is emailed at the very least to all employees. It's put on your intranet so it can be accessed at any time. And maybe it's time for some training to um, deal with these issues so that employees know exactly what the issues are with respect to cannabis, because I think there are a lot of myths out there. And would you be envisioning seeing medical cannabis and other types of cannabis use treated differently under policies or the same? Well, medical cannabis, I think, should be in there already. If you are using, if you have employees who are using medical cannabis, then again, they need to be disclosing that so that that the employer can uh, accommodate their own workplace to ensure that you don't have individuals who are working in an impaired manner. For cannabis, uh, once it becomes legalized, there's no, I think the biggest concern is, again, making sure that employees understand fully that you can't turn up to work high in the same way that you can't turn up to work drunk. Does a zero tolerance policy look like it would be enforceable under law? I think so. I mean, again, we don't have any case law on this, but I, I don't see a problem with having a zero tolerance policy. You can have it with respect to alcohol. Um, so I, I don't see the problem with having it with respect to cannabis either. Again, the, the, the issue with zero tolerance is that there are always the exceptions that you need to accommodate, again, to use that word. So there may be uh, an individual who uh, does turn up and has an addiction and you need to accommodate that issue and there may be a different approach taken to that individual than there is someone who is not uh, an addict, for example. We've talked a little bit about unionized and non-unionized environments. In setting policy, does a unionized environment matter? It will all depend on the collective agreement and whether or not you can impose uh, these sorts of change without consulting the union. And that's actually part of the biggest issue with respect to the Suncor case. Uh, it, it, it's implementation. Implementation, yeah. It was the idea that the union said, well, you should have spoken to us. This doesn't fall under the management rights clause. And that's that was the bigger issue. It's just the one that comes into the public domain and the one that people get most excited about is the drug and alcohol aspect of it rather than the collective agreement issue. And I can't say I blame people for that. Sounds like we're seeing some best practices and some law around implementation coming from the courts. Yes, certainly from the unionized context, but it, it, it always falls back to if you can agree anything you want with your employees, generally speaking, and um, yeah, if, if you have a good working relationship with your employees and they understand the need for certain types of testing, for example, then it shouldn't be an issue imp- implementing these, and certainly it shouldn't be an issue amending policies to make sure that they... Uh, tell employees what you expect from them and that they're clear and they're communicated and that the employees understand them. A lot of employers will be looking at this and saying, I need to treat this the same way as I treat alcohol. Is that the right framework? Generally, yeah. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't see any concern with that general approach. There are differences um, currently, but I think as we progress with the legalization process that stigma will fall away and who knows it may be that in uh, a short period of time 
people will be allowing cannabis at Christmas parties. Um, and, you know, five years ago, that would have sounded ludicrous, but uh, it, it, it may well be the, the future. Are workplace smoking policies relevant here as well? Oh, very much so, yes. Um, it, I mean, a lot depends on how you're going to be using the can- or ingesting the cannabis, but certainly smoking policies will apply generally. So you couldn't have someone smoking cannabis in the workplace, for example. Um, that would, uh, assuming that the workplace is inside, uh, you know, the smoking policy will apply in the same way as it would with a cigarette. And when should employers seek legal assistance to prepare for the effect of changes respecting cannabis in the workplace? Well, I think any time now, like we, we, we can see it coming and we can discuss um, the particular requirements of a workplace and what the particular issues are with respect to any individual workplace and what changes are needed for individual policies. It may be that the change will be to a, an impairment policy or a fitness to work policy, or as you raised, it may be that uh, an employer decides that they are going to have a no smoking policy implemented because it's easier to implement one of those than it is to implement a zero tolerance cannabis policy, for example. So there are ways to get round the, uh, the vitriol that you might face if you implement a, a zero tolerance cannabis policy uh, following its legalization. Well, thank you, Duncan. It's been a real pleasure to have you here today. Any last comments as we see change happening in the workplace? I think the main issue is to ensure that your employees know what is expected of them. It's communicated to them and they understand that just because they have an addiction doesn't mean that they're going to lose their jobs. And just because they may be using cannabis uh, once it becomes legalized doesn't mean that that's something they need to hide from their employer. I, I guess I come back to the, the the remark we made at the start, which is if you're driving along in your car and you feel like you're too tired to be driving, you should pull over. Like I think we would all agree that that's the sensible thing to do. Common sense ought Com- to be implied. Common sense. And so I don't see how that would be any different in the workplace. Now, obviously, the difficulty is that you have projects that need to be completed on time and you have things that need to be done and the employee is concerned that if they come and they say I'm, I, feel, I just feel too tired to work today that they're going to be sent home without any pay and so it, it does need working out and it does need practical considerations but it may well be that you can send that individual home for a nap uh, or you can put them on other duties for a period of time until they have um either had some rest or uh, or had some caffeine or whatever it, it's needed until they feel safe enough to operate the machinery. But it really comes down to, like you said at the outset, safety first and making sure that employers operate a, a, a safe workplace while still respecting individuals' rights under human rights legislation and privacy legislation. Well, thank you, Duncan. Great to have you with us. BLG is committed to helping its clients effectively and responsibly navigate Canada's move from prohibition to regulation of cannabis. Our commitment is mirrored by our attention to the rapidly evolving cannabis industry, which is uniquely regulated federally across Canada, locally within provinces and municipalities, and in jurisdictions beyond our borders. BLG's multidisciplinary cannabis industry group is at the forefront of Canada's legal service providers. BLG is continually involved in corporate transactions and advisory services, including labor and employment, across all cannabis industry sections and subsections. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Alan.